When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Lucy. And Lucy was in an abusive relationship with a water torturer. It's a story of religious beliefs, neglect, fighting dirty, hoovering, and healing. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Lucy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Lucy is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. We are always looking for people to send in their stories, so please do send in your stories today. And we're also going to be doing this initiative starting very soon and we're going to be creating a portal on our website. And if you have a online business of any sort, Etsy store, eBay store, you provide some sort of service, editing, things like that, we want to create a portal for people to use your services. If you are someone who's trying to get out of a relationship and need to squirrel money away, or you are out of the relationship, and you're just trying to put a roof over your head and you know put food on the table. So uh, please send us your, your stores or your services. And when we get our new uh, website up and running and uh, the portal, portal uh, available. We're going to put everyone's stuff on there. So just send those things in to us today. And today you're also going to be hearing Lucy's story. There is no trigger warning for this episode. This episode is all psychological abuse. And I really want to thank Lucy for being here. And now without further ado, Lucy, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be able to share my story. And my hope is that my story resonates with other people who may be in a similar situation as I was in, or maybe you're recently 
out of the situation and you're still struggling with a lot of self-doubt, you are not crazy. You're not alone. What happened to you was real. Um, So I am going to read an excerpt from a song called Meadowlark um, from a musical called The Baker's Wife. And this song really resonated with me last year when I was getting out of my 22-year psychologically abusive relationship where I didn't have the insight while I was in the relationship to realize that I was in an abusive relationship. My childhood um, and conditioning was not, it did not give me the tools that I needed to know what I was facing. Um, And it took a unique set of circumstances for me to actually have my eyes opened um, to what I had been experiencing for so long. And when I heard the lyrics to this song, it was something that really stuck out to me. And there are aspects of this story, this song, that if people who have been in, in a narcissistic, psychologically abusive relationship will really be able to identify the parts of this uh, that correspond with the various ways that narcissists will hook and and keep you and how you don't even realize it. So this song is called Meadowlark and it's told from the perspective of, of a girl telling the story. It says, when I was a girl, I had a favorite story of the meadowlark who lived where the rivers wind. Her voice could match the angels in its glory, but she was blind. The lark was blind. The king of the rivers took her to his palace where the walls were burnished bronze and golden braid. And he fed her fruits and nuts from an ivory chalice. And he prayed, sing for me, my meadowlark. Sing for me of the silver morning. Set me free, my meadowlark, and I'll buy you a priceless jewel and cloth of brocade and cruel. And I'll love you for life if you will sing for me. Then one day, as the lark sang by the water, the god of the sun heard her in his flight, and her singing moved him so. He came and brought her the gift of sight. He gave her sight. And she opened her eyes to the shimmer and the splendor. And he called to the lark in a voice both rough and tender. Come along, fly with me, my meadow lark. Fly with me on the silver morning. We will dance on the coral beaches just as far as your vision reaches. Fly with me. But the meadow lark said no. For the old king loved her so. She couldn't bear to wound his pride. So the sun god flew away, and when the king came down that day, he found his meadowlark had died. Every time I heard that part, I cried. If love has come at last, it's picked the worst time. Still, I know I've got to go. Fly away, meadowlark. Fly away in the silver morning. If I stay, I'll grow to curse the dark. So it's off where the days won't bind me. I know I leave my wounds behind me, but I won't let tomorrow find me back this way before my past once again can bind me, fly away. And looking at the different aspects of that story, you'll see where the meadowlark 
was blind. She didn't realize she was in the situation she was in. The king isolated her. He love-bombed her. He told her she was wonderful, but his affection was conditional. She had to do all of the things for him that he needed for her to do. And if she didn't, then his affection for her was, was taken away. And she needed to be given the gift of sight so she could realize that while she lived in a, a be- in a beautiful cage, it was still a cage. And this eventually caused her to die. This caused her to, you know, in this, in this allegory, she physically died. But I think many people who have been in abusive relationships can say that they had a bit of soul death, you could call it, where, you know, you, you didn't feel like the same person that you once were or that you could be because you just felt dead inside. I know that that was very much the case for me. Even when she was given the gift of sight, she still couldn't leave because she was trauma bonded. He, she thought that his treatment was love because she didn't know any better. She didn't want to wound his pride because she was trauma bonded to him. And after that is when she died. And I truly believe that once you have seen, it's at that point that you aren't able to physically stay anymore. Once you know what's happening to you, you cannot, you can no longer stay in the situation that you're in because your, your body starts giving you all kinds of signals that this is wrong. So that is just a story that really pushed me forward because in my case, I couldn't, once I saw what was happening, I couldn't allow myself to be put back into the cage or put, put back into the box where I would be taken out and being given just the breadcrumbs when it was convenient or when it, it suited him. Um, and then to just have to go back in the cage when it was time to go back in the cage. And, and after you have that sight, you cannot go back to being blinded. So for you, you grew up in an evangelical background. Is that correct? Yes, we were um, considered evangelical Christians. Um, We, um, particularly Baptists, we were Baptists, um, but it was very much a focus on evangelicalism. So it was a very conservative style of upbringing strict notion of behavior. Um, and it was very, I guess you could say it made us very performative and it was very patriarchal. So my church upbringing, everything that we did, basically my whole entire life revolved around the church. We were, um, the church was very big into homeschooling. Um, most of the families in my church um, all homeschooled their their kids. Um, most of the women in the church didn't work. It really wasn't a something that was it wasn't explicitly said that women couldn't work, but most of them didn't. And the ones that did, there was definitely kind of a bit of um, an an air of looking down on them in a way, um, just because it it 
it wasn't how it was supposed to be. A woman was supposed to have her children and stay home and and be with the kids. Um, and like I said, homeschooling was a big thing. We all of the activities and everything that we did was with the church. Um, we had lots of church programs throughout the week, um, and it was very normal for us. But it was very isolating and everybody within that community really there was a very deep sense of of fear of anything to do that was secular dress and modesty was a very big deal um some some people went to school but it they did it was generally a christian school um if they did go outside of that homeschooling model um and there was a very, very big emphasis on um, performative behavior and not anything to do with really, you know, uh, understanding children or just even typical child development. It was it was a very, very strict um, upbringing in that way. And there was also a very, very big uh, a part. A big part of this story is for me is that I grew up my entire childhood being extremely fearful of hell and eternity, which was something that they used to control behavior. Um, you know, you can either go to hell and burn for all eternity, or you can follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus. So, you know, when you're brought up in that and everybody around you, that's what you do. You, you just believe it and you just follow it and you don't question it. And you know, it, it's very simple, right? Of course. Like, why wouldn't I do this? Because I don't want to go to this, you know, go to this place. But it caused me as, as somebody who was very sensitive um, to be extremely fearful all the time. I developed a very, very strong case of um, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder by the time I was about eight years old, because I was so afraid of, of doing something wrong. I was afraid of, um, the, there is a a Bible verse that basically says, if you've thought, if you've thought about the, the sin in your mind, then you've already actually committed it. So I developed this crazy intrusive thought anxiety where, you know, I would think of these things and I was afraid that I had actually done them and it really got out of control. And, you know, the solution, you know, to this was finally just that I needed to spend more time reading the Bible and more time praying and, and those things, there wasn't, um, any outside mental health help for that. And this, you know, continued this very conservative, very strict, um, upbringing, through, um, my, you know, early teen years, um, where I started, um, I did actually go to a really small Christian school, um, in seventh and eighth grade, which it really probably can't even be considered a school. It was basically just like a homeschool group, but we went to the school to have school and it was possibly even more conservative than the church that I, you know, had been attending women weren't you know allowed to even wear pants (laughs) you know it was it was that conservative and and my church um, as well there was no women women had no position could have no position of authority um over men in any way so 
you know, a woman could teach children or other women, but a woman couldn't, she couldn't lead men in any way. She can give her input into um, a decision-making factor within the home, but ultimately the man is the head of the household, the ultimate authority. And, you know, ultimately what he says goes. Um, And we were kind of told that we should really be grateful for that because he was the one that was responsible to God and not us. So we should be happy that we don't have to make those decisions. So this continued on until I, um, you know, I, I went to this Christian school um, and I, I met a couple of friends there who um, their church was, they didn't go to my church, but they were in a, a church that was very similar to mine. And so I was allowed to start attending their youth group, which was, you know, just like a teen, a teen group that got together on um, one night a week. Um, and that's where I met my ex-husband. So before we get to your husband, uh, you emailed me with some issues you had, and I guess a lot of beliefs that you had. Uh, some of them were that you have ADHD, you have perfectionism, a divorce was not an option for you. Uh, you had the belief that anything could be worked out with enough prayer. There was very much an idea that people could change so you should, uh, I guess, let them stick around to work out those issues. And that r- includes physical abuse as well. Uh, within your relationships, you had to be uh, with someone who was a born-again Christian. And also, your, your belief at this time was that anyone who's a born-again Christian is inherently good. And within this um, uh, ideology let's say, this ideology, uh, you're told that your body isn't for you and it is for your future husband. And so these are a lot of these things kind of floating around inside you that will contribute to you staying. So uh, after kind of pointing all this stuff out, uh, let's just kind of get back to your your meeting of your husband because you meet him when you are 13, he's 15, and, you know, 15 years old, uh, you can be immature at that age, and many things can be chalked up to being immature. Uh, so it's really difficult to discern behavior, especially behavior that will persist uh, down the road compared to uh, someone who uh, might learn and grow. You, you can be 15 years old and be immature, and you can still learn and grow. Uh, so you don't know that problematic behavior is problematic behavior uh, until someone actually gets older or patterns are formed. So you're meeting your abuser at the age of 13 inside this religious bubble. So I guess walk us through how your relationship well, with him begins. He was, a, you know, a little bit older than me. He was really cool. I really liked him. Um, he played the guitar um, and he was cute. You know, it's all these things, these, uh, you know, young teenage girl things, I guess. And he needed a vocalist for one of his songs. So, um, you know, I kind of put myself out there for that. And that's how we started spending some time together because we were working on um, some music together. And um, 
he was very mysterious, I guess. He was quiet um, and a little bit withdrawn, but I found it very interesting, I guess. And um, he had expressed, I guess, to um, a friend, a mutual, another mutual friend that he was interested, um, you know, but he was fearful to, um, he didn't, he didn't want to put himself out there to, to ask me to be his girlfriend, quote unquote, um, which is, you know, was, you know, at that age, you know, most, most boys aren't, aren't too fearful of doing that. So, um, it turns out I, I, I found out that, you know, he had had, um, an experience where he asked a girl out one time and she rejected him. And after that, he had just, he said that he just, you know, he gave up. He didn't want to try anymore. He didn't you know, want to face that rejection. So even at that young age, um, already very hypersensitive to rejection, um, which obviously at 13 years old, you don't realize is a, um, a red flag. Um, so he had to have assurances that I was going to say yes before, um, before he asked me out. So, um, he, you know, he got those assurances and of course this is triggering, um, a response in me, um, of a very, uh, you know, a caretaker and, and the, you know, the empathetic side of me and, um, something that, and I'll just run it through really quickly is just that I have, um, you know, I, I had things in my childhood, my, my, biological father left my family when I was, um, very young. And, um, while I don't have a lot of specific memory of him, I also lost my set of grandparents on, on his side of the family, um, at, you know, around the age of four to five. And I do remember that, um, you know, and, and I do have a, my mom remarried my stepdad and, um, you know, I, I do have, you know, that family there, but there is an abandonment trauma in my past. And, um, you know, that is something that has come, you know, forward for me and realizing that I do have an anxious attachment style where I, you know, I'm very sensitive to people's feelings and emotions, and I'm always trying to assess and I'm always, you know, and this could be to a little bit of that, you know, perfectionism that, you know, ADHD type thing where I'm constantly assessing people and assessing their emotions and, um, and trying to be, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm seeking love. Essentially. I'm, I'm, I'm on this, you know, or, or was on this constant feeling of needing to be loved and picked even amongst friends, just having that feeling of kind of being, um, on the outside and looking in and, and wanting to be picked. So I took this and I said, you know, I I'm going to not I'm going to be a different than the other girls. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, love him anyway. And, um, you know, and and I'm going to show him that there's something different. So within three weeks into our relationship now, mind you, we're only 13 and 15 and we live about an hour apart from each other. So neither one of us is driving at this point. Um, so our, you know, quote unquote relationship, was done, you know, primarily via phone. And at that time it was emails. Our relationship was very limited. Um, and we would see each other on Sundays. Typically we'd, you know, go to church on Sunday morning and then we could spend time together at one of our houses. So I could go to his house or he'd come to to my house on Sunday afternoons in between, um, church and youth group. And it was 
supervised. So our relationship was extremely limited. We primarily communicated in those electronic means. Um, and within just a couple of weeks, um, he was saying, you know, you, you are different than all of the other girls. You are, you know, you're, you're special. Um, you know, you, and, and you meet, you check all of these, these boxes, you know, you check all these criteria, um, for a wife essentially. Um, because, uh, you know, a 13, <laughs> at 13 years old, I was checking boxes to be someone's wife. But for me, because of that love seeker part of me was very, very susceptible to falling into that feeling of just this fantasy, this romance of having been picked by this person that, you know, I thought was wonderful. So from this point, you dated for how long before you got married? So we got engaged when I was 17 and we got married eight days after my 18th birthday. And when did things go from, you know, there might've been some red flags going on to what's going on isn't right. When did that happen? So there were a few red flags while we were dating, but because of our pretty limited contact and the fact that we didn't live together before we got married was, um, it made it so it was almost impossible for me to, to know. And the fact that I didn't know what to be looking for. So in hindsight, when I look back, I can see that, um, one of the, the biggest red flags while we were dating that definitely carried over into the marriage was just a extreme emotional avoidance. I thought a lot of this came from a lot of the avoidance um, from trying to just avoid having sex. So, you know, if we're not spending a lot of, you know, emotionally connected time together, then that um, aspect is going to be easier. But he was definitely, definitely emotionally avoidant. And he started very, very subtly um, starting to flip grievances. Like whenever I'd say something, um, you know, if, if it was something wrong that, I, you know, something that had happened that I didn't, you know, that needed to be confronted, um, he started very subtly flipping those things back on me. Um, and probably, um, one of the, what, one of the biggest red flags that turned out to be one of the, a major issue was that he really started grooming me in very early on about my physical appearance. Um, and he, when at, uh, about 15 years old, he really emphasized that he wouldn't tolerate, um, a wife who was overweight, um, and was just I absolutely, you know, he said it was a big fear of his that, you know, he'd marry a, a wife and she'd be beautiful and then she would get fat, as he said. Um, and of course, like at 15 years old, you know, you say, oh, well, no, you know, that's not going to be a problem. It's not going to happen. So these were just some red flags that started to pop up um, before we got married. But then when we got married, there really wasn't there really wasn't a honeymoon period like I expected. He really, right away, he set the stage. If something occurs, if we have any issues between us in the marriage, that we're not going to discuss them with other people. I, of course, you know, I was 18 years old and I was really 
trying to, I wanted to be a good wife and I wanted to, to do it, you know, and of course I was, you know, it's absolutely like, that's, I agree with you. And there was really very much a, um, kind of like an us against the world mentality. He really liked kind of that, you know, us being like somewhat separated. He really didn't, um, we really didn't have much to do with either one of our families, really, you know, I wasn't physically isolated. He didn't tell me I couldn't see people or whatever, but there was just very much a, a a feeling of, you know, we have our own family now we've, you know, leaved and cleaved as he would say, you know, I had him as my sole emotional uh, connection. And I, I realized pretty well, I didn't, I didn't realize, but I mean, I noticed pretty quickly that because he was my sole um, emotional connection, that he was able to give and take and kind of use that as a reward and punishment type system. There was a very distinct feeling when we got, as soon as we got married, of um, just feeling like he wasn't with me anymore it was a feeling like of where did where did he go like where did this you know this this man this boy that I had married you know when we were you know so optimistic and um he retreated into playing excessive amounts of video games um to the point that like in the beginning of our marriage he would as soon as he'd get home from work every day you know, he'd sit down on his computer and he would essentially play until he went to bed at night. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, he'd play or he'd have a friend over and then they would play all day, every day. Um, and I really wasn't allowed to have an opinion about this. Um, and this is really when this really started, um, he really started to, um, use a lot of these abuse, abusive tactics, um, was around whenever, I would express to him about anything, um, not just video games, but video games seem to be the primary problem um, that that's when he tried. That's when all of these, um, you know, psychologically abusive tactics started to um, to occur. And this was also I mean, there there was just it was at this point that, you know, I had actually um, developed a medical condition, an endocrine system disorder, where I had started um, gaining weight and gaining weight pretty rapidly for no other reason than I, you know, had some imbalances that needed to get taken care of. And he, um, you know, he just flat out, flat out rejected me um, physically. He told me he wasn't attracted to me anymore. Um, and he, you know, would physically reject me if I would try to make advances and he would, you know, turn over or, and, um, just very physically, physically rejecting, um, and emotionally rejecting. So it was the point that he wasn't really wanting to spend time together. He didn't really seem to enjoy my company anymore. And he was also, uh, physically, physically rejecting me at this point as well. So and what I didn't realize at the time was that this wasn't um, normal, essentially that, you know, it wasn't normal for the two people in their relationship to not actually be connecting. Um, and I didn't have a way to find out that it wasn't normal because as I had said before, at this point, he had me isolated by telling me not to talk about the problems with other people. Um so everything, this has really, really set the stage for his gaslighting to start. 
So I just want to point out here that you are about to hear a story of an abuser who is predominantly the water torturer in Lundy Bancroft's uh, types of abusers. So just in case people wanted to go read about that type and uh, follow along. Yeah. Absolutely. That, I mean, and I only recently just found um, Lundy Bancroft, but when I read um, his description of the water torturer, I mean, I could have written that word for word. Um, it, it was one of those feelings of reading it where like your whole body like turns cold because you're like, oh my God, that was literally, that was literally my life. Um, he's also a very much um, a Mr. Right and a bit of a demand man too. You can look at those, but the water torturer um, is one of the hardest to detect because they're so subtle. Um, and so every argument with him was like an all out war. And I didn't realize that, you know, I just said, you know, he's just, you know, not good at communication. Um, he just fights really dirty. Um, but it didn't seem to matter what the topic was. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to hear. He took me saying, I need more time with you. I need you to want to be in this relationship with me. I need you to, to love me back. I need you. And, and every time that would happen, it would be met with extreme hostility is almost if I had insulted him. So if I said to him, I need more time with you. I need you to care about this relationship. It would be met with that. I was always bitching at him. You know, you're always bitching at me. You're always negative. You're always complaining. Um, you know, you, you just think so negatively of me. Um, you know, this is why you're saying these things. And if you, you know, if you, the only reason that you feel this way is because you have daddy issues. Um, the only reason that you, that my actions hurt you is because you're insecure. Um, you know, you need to go get help. You need therapy. Um, you aren't normal. The things you're asking for aren't normal. Um, you know, life, life's not a Hallmark movie. You know, it's not my job to entertain you. You should be happy that I'm um, I'm only doing these things and I'm not doing these things. I could be doing all of these things, every possible way he could flip it. And there was never a time that he acknowledged, I can see, you know, it was just a constant devaluation and dismissal of everything I ever thought or felt. Then what would happen is I'm sure people are, who are experienced with this type of abuse, um, you a normal reaction to this is being angry to being just everything that you're saying is being dismissed. And now something to notice note too, um, and it's consistent with the water torturer is that they do it all in an extremely calm way. So he's devaluing me. He's putting me down. He's telling me, you know, I'm batshit crazy and you know, all of these things. And he sitting there doing it, with this calm demeanor and a quiet voice. And he is doing it with this grin on his face, with this smug grin on his face, or, or he'd chuckle and laugh. And, you know, if I commented on that, it would be, you know, like, why are you smiling? And he would, you know, I'm not allowed to smile. I mean, he would just be every, every, absolutely everything would be flipped. 
And if you've ever been in that situation, you know how infuriating it is. And then I would lash out and I would yell at him and I would call him a jerk and I would call him an asshole. And then the entire argument at that point would start, would be um, focused on my reaction. It didn't matter what we had started fighting about because I had yelled at him. He had the ability then to take what I did and say, see, um, this is, this is how you are. And this is why I don't like to spend time with you because this is how you act. And, you know, I'm no, I'm not the one who's yelling at you. I'm not the one who's abusive towards you. Um, you know, you, you're the one who's yelling and swearing, you know, you can't say I'm the bad guy because you're the one who's yelling and swearing, which is just, you know, absolutely infuriating. And then it makes it, he would say, you know, this is, this is the reason because you are like this. This is why, you know, I don't like to spend time with you because you're always mocking me. You're always, um, you know, I don't speak up because, you know, you're just going to shit on everything that I say. Um, you know, just this constant, no matter what I said or did would matter at that point. Um, and it would usually end up just, you know, and then he would say, I'm not going to talk to you if you're like this. Um, and then the conversation would be over because he'd stonewall and then he'd give me the silent treatment until the next day, usually until I could kind of crawl back and prove that I wasn't, that I had dropped it, that I had, you know, let it go. And then we'd kind of go on business as usual until the next time. So you were also gaining weight at this time, um, which probably was used in put downs a lot as well. And as far as, you know, creating self-esteem issues uh, within you and maybe self-acceptance issues as well, you wrote to me that cognitive dissonance became a really big thing within this time. So can you kind of discuss what that was to you and like, I guess, how you came to understand it within that time? Because it has to be confusing as far as mixed messages that might be happening there. Yeah, so I the, the weight issue occurred mostly in just the first few years of the marriage. Um, and I was able to, you know, with the, the right um, medications and things, I was able to get that um, under control um, and get the weight off. And that it definitely caused me to have a lot of resentment towards him because he was, you know, all of a sudden interested again. And I felt very used. Like I just felt very, you know, that you, you didn't care about what you said and did towards me, you know, when I wasn't as you wanted me to be, but, you know, now that I am, you know, I, I look the way that you want me to look um, now you want me, you know, now I'm worth it to you. Um, but it was more, I think that was a huge issue and that it had been an issue, you know, up and down throughout and the marriage. And if I did gain weight, because it does, the condition really makes it very, very easy for me to gain weight. Um, so I have kind of gone up and down my whole adult life. And whenever I did, I definitely always felt and felt that, feeling of he's going to reject me again. He's going to, you know, he's going to be cruel to me. And he was very much like, that was such an issue for him 
where, you know, and he'd make a lot of comments and, and often they weren't directly related to me, but they were in general of, you know, like, um, you know, women should spend less time, you know, worrying about their hair and nails and, you know, more time worrying about their weight or, um, you know, he really hated the whole like body positivity movement. Um, but I think it was more than the physical rejection for me. I think it was more of the emotional rejection that just never wanting to be a part of the relationship where he always would, would prefer to be away from me essentially with his actions and really his word, tell me that he didn't want the relationship. He, you know, he kind of wanted, he wanted me for when he wanted me and for what he wanted me for, but I wasn't expected. I was, I was expected to not have any needs outside of, of what he wanted me for. And if I pushed for anything more than what he was willing to give, that's when all of these abusive tactics would come. But on the other hand, if I just didn't say anything and I just let him do what he wanted to do and I just went with the flow, he'd be okay. Now, like he was never overly, you know, overly loving or, um, you know, super fun or, you know, you you hear, hear about these very stark contrasts, contrasts, but to him, just the peace, like just the, um, him not walking around with a scowl on his face or me not trying to feeling like I'm trying to uh, assess his, his mood constantly. Like those were the, the good things. The cognitive dissonance definitely occurred from him telling me that, no, I love you, but treating me unlovingly constantly. Um, and then you just grow to assume that, you know, what love is when in reality, none of the things that he was doing or the ways that he was acting were, were loving at all. Nothing, nothing I said ever mattered. Um, it, it, it was almost like a, a switch would flip, um, in his brain when he'd hear something that, you know, being questioned or, you know, asked to be held accountable for anything. It was, you know, he just really couldn't, he really couldn't handle that. Um, and then that's when, you know, that's when it would all really start. And he really didn't, I mean, he never showed any kind of empathy or remorse. And I mean, he never, we get into these, you know, these circular conversations and I would end up, you know, sobbing, you know, because it was so frustrating and so disheartening, like to be just chronically misunderstood and invalidated and to have nothing you ever said matter to the person that claims that they love you. You know, they, they say, you know, I I love you. I, I care so much about your, about how you view me. Um, but then they act the complete opposite. And that's also another tie into the, the cognitive dissonance, but they, they don't, they don't care. You know, there was never any comfort there. There was never any, cause he thought he was right, you know, and he, he, he didn't feel the need to show any comfort or any empathy because, you know, I shouldn't have been thinking that in the first place. So it wasn't on him to apologize. It wasn't on him to try to make any peace. And 
there was a chronic lack of resolution. So your relationship your relationship is like this for a very long time and you eventually do move um, within your relationship. You, you move to another place. So uh, I guess what happens after you move and is there any point up until then where you actually get the word divorce inside your head? Like that might be a possibility because I'm sure it's very difficult to get to that word within the way that you were raised in being in that bubble for so long? Yes, um, for sure. The divorce, I mean, really, that wasn't even on my radar. I I would say things like, why are we even together? I would say, you know, if you you dislike me this much, if you have this little desire to want to be around me or spend time with me, or you have a relationship with me, then why are we even together? Um, you know, and of course that, you know, was, you know, met with, you know, I, I'm so terrible. You know, he would be, he did this very um, self-deprecating talk where he would, it was like he was talking to himself. No, he was, it was as if he was arguing with me, but he was arguing with himself. It was very bizarre. And he would say, um, I know, I know. I'm such a terrible husband. I'm such a terrible father. Um, you know, and your life is so bad. He would say, you know, I, I know your life is so terrible. Um, I'm such a terrible guy, but I didn't, I still didn't think that divorce was an option. Um, because I, I had been with him since I was 13 years old and you just, you don't get divorced. So our life was taking was continuing to progress. So I ended up like against, against all odds because, um, of how I was raised and my, my family structure and everything like women, the women in my family, actually, uh, most of the, 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 the women that I grew up with, it wasn't, um, women didn't go to college. So when I said after high school, um, that I was going to go to college, um, I was met with a, um, from my family, I was met with a, you know, why are you going to go to college when you're going to be a wife and mother type of thing? And I defied that. I I was more, I guess, on the, you know, quote unquote, rebellious side for, for my church. Um, and I did for very fortunately, very, very fortunately did continue with my education. Um, I have a master's degree and a great career, thankfully, because it's made the whole process of getting, you know, out of the situations exponentially easier. Um, but when we moved, so, so, you know, we, we moved into our dream home, big, beautiful home. Um, and I had just found out I was pregnant with our second child. When we moved there, it really seemed to, things seemed to get worse. He seemed even more reclusive than ever. So, something that would happen. I'm I'm very much, and it's probably the same with a lot of people, at least most women that I know. Um, you, we need to feel close with our partner to want to be intimate. And that was something he didn't understand at all. And so he would think that he could, you know, play video games in the basement and then come up and, you know, get what he wanted from me. And I would let it happen most of the time because it felt like it was the only time that we were connecting. 
it felt it was the only time that I felt like he wanted me um, in any way, even if it was just, you know, for for that. And I let it go for a really long time. And often I would even say, you know, if you come upstairs, you know, we can have sex and then you can go back down if you want to. Um, because I just wanted that like brief period of time of feeling like I mattered to him. Um, even though I was, you know, still just rewarding him essentially for, you know, doing whatever he wanted to do and not investing in the marriage. And I would, I would tell him in every way that I could possibly think of that, you know, this isn't like, this is upsetting. And and I would feel in it. It's, it's interesting in hindsight, because at the time, even though I was, um, you know, I was consenting, I was even initiating, um, but it still felt coercive somehow. And I didn't know how, I didn't know why. Um, and that, you know, it ended up creating, you know, some big problems. And I got to the point where I started saying, you know, I'm not going to let this happen anymore. And instead of, you know, him taking that as like, okay, I need to prioritize my marriage, my wife, I need to figure out like what I can do to invest in, in her. Um, it was just less and less. It was just, he just was just drifting further and farther away. So it got to the point in the relationship where I was exhausted. I was just, I couldn't, there was nothing I could do. I fought like hell to try to get my needs met in the marriage. He, like I've said, just on loop, um, emotional abuse every time I tried to make anything better. And I kind of had just got to the point where I said, you know, this isn't worth it. I have a beautiful life. I have a beautiful home, my dream home. I have a great career. I have two kids, a boy and a girl. I have great friends. I have a great life and I need to just give up. I like, there was a defining moment that I said, I give up to myself, not to him. Um, that I can't fight. I can't fight him anymore because that's when everything got worse all the time was when I would fight him. So I, I just stopped and things would still come up now and then, but it was far less because it was just easier. It would usually only be if I, you know, something really set me off. Um, and I felt the need to bring something up to him, but I just essentially stopped. Um, and then I just started spending a lot of time alone. Um, uh, I was in my bedroom a lot, just watching TV at night, most of the time. Um, and you know, he would be in the basement and that was it. We just lived basically separate lives. It was like, a roommate situation. We'd, you know, both go to work, come home, you know, we'd kind of do move around each other, you know, doing things around the house. And then once the kids were in bed, it was just separate ways. Um, no real relationship at all. And I had been, I had prayed my whole life, um, uh, our whole marriage that, you know, God would intervene somehow that he would that he would change him, that he would make him see how his actions were hurtful, that, um, he would fix it essentially. And I 
I prayed that earnestly for years and years. And then I got to the point where I said, well, you know, God, if you're not going to change him, can you just change me? Um, just change me to need less um, because I need a, a relationship where I have a closeness with my partner and I can't get that from this man, no matter how hard I try. Um, so please just take it away, take away that desire. Um, and for a while I thought that he had, and I would joke around that I was dead inside. I would say it all the time. I would be like, I'm the ice queen. Um, I, I, you know, just nothing brings me joy. And then I was depressed clearly. So I would say a few years go by like this and I eventually do, um, find a hobby. And I, um, I like to sing, um, as a hobby and, um, I found an app, um, on, you know, on, on my phone where singers, um, could, you know, it was kind of like a karaoke app and, um, it was fun. I really loved it. And there were, um, you know, it's a huge community and there were lots of people on there and, you know, you can collaborate and you can do things together and it was, it was just fun. And then several months into using it, um, I, I met a friend and we just hit it off and we just enjoyed spending time together. And it was all virtual. It was all over the app. It was all, um, you know, related to singing and, we just started spending more and more time together and we started, you know, working on projects collaboratively. He was, um, interested in me and I was very upfront, um, about being married and I wasn't letting on in any way, shape or form that I was having any kind of marriage problems. Um, but just that, and, but, but it didn't, um, you know, it, it, it was fine. It was, yeah, absolutely. This is, we're just, we're just friends. It's, you know, it's perfectly fine. But this person was giving me so much of what I had been lacking for so long. And uh, the feeling was undescribable. Just the, the feeling of being wanted by somebody, the feeling of, um, just being interested in me as a person. And even though there was, you know, no indication, no, no hope essentially that there was going to be any kind of a relationship other than a friendship. Um, and still this person stuck around and just showed, showed active interest in me, you know, would ask, ask me if I wanted to do things together. And we ended up developing a relationship without realizing we were developing a relationship. It, really opened my eyes because I realized that this person, this friend was more interested in me as a, as a person and, you know, treated me for the first time, somebody treated me for the first time in a relationship that, you know, didn't make it seem like I was difficult to be around or insufferable to be around that they actually enjoyed my company. I mean, and it'd be like early on when we would, 
you know, we were spending, we, we ended up spending every evening together, um, on the phone, um, you know, cause it would be, do you want to, you know, do you want to watch this movie together? Or do you want to work on these songs together tonight or whatever? There was initiation there. There was a, there was a desire there to, to just be around me as a person. And I would say, don't you have anything better to do? And, and not in like a rude way, but in like a, in a genuine, you know, you must have something else you would rather be doing than spending your time with me. And, you know, and it wasn't the case. It was, you know, it was, you know, what else would I rather be doing than spending time with you? And even just there were, you know, something came up and there was a a minor conflict. And I remember I had to approach him about something that had happened. And um, it was the way that he handled the conflict for me that really opened my eyes to the way that I had been being treated because I was ready for, you know, oh, you're always complaining, you know, you're, you're just crazy. I already do so much for you. How can you, you know, I I was ready for that. But he, when I brought up the thing that had bothered me, he said, you're right. I did do that. I'm really sorry. I'm going to fix that. And I will never do it again. And I was like, what, wait, what do I do now? Like, wait, we're we're done. That's over. (laughs) And, um, I think that was one of the most eye-opening moments for me is that conflict wasn't supposed to be harsh and cruel. And there wasn't supposed to be this psychological mind game, um, to it. So anyway, I kept it friends, um, just close friends. And I thought that, you know, that I could keep it there because it felt it was, it was wonderful. And things were going better with, with, uh, my ex and I, because he, I wasn't bothering him anymore. Um, you know, we weren't fighting because I wasn't, I wasn't bothering him and I was getting all of these emotional needs met and, um, you know, and things were, things seemed good. And I said, you know, this is, even though I knew really deep down that it, it couldn't last, but I got to the point where it was, it was just, becoming so plainly obvious that I was never, I was never going to have what I was getting in this friendship that I was in my marriage. It just would, it would never, it would never occur. And it just got to the point where the the scales just tipped. And I realized I had feelings that I couldn't, couldn't hold in anymore it just kind of went from there. And then I just felt like that it was the first time ever that I could start to see a glimpse of life outside of my cage. Um, and it still took me a really long time from that point, um, to admit that the marriage was over, that it was going to be over, um, and that I was going to leave I was still kind of in this delusion, I guess that the the trauma bond or whatever, where I didn't think I could actually leave. And then for the first time ever. So when it became obvious that I was mentally checked out of this, the marriage, um, and he became aware of what was going on. Um, it was the first time in our entire marriage that all of a sudden he was interested in me. Um, 
interested in all of a sudden spending all the time with me. He wanted to, you know, he was planning these big elaborate dates at these ridiculously fancy restaurants. He was taking me to see um, musicals because he knows I love that and he hated them. He's planning dancing lessons for us to take. He's doing all of these things and I just, I couldn't shake that it just felt fake. It just felt like manipulation. And at this point, I didn't have that kind of vocabulary. I didn't have those those words to say, you know, this is hoovering, this is love bombing. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that, but my, my body, my entire, my entire system was telling me something that's wrong here. Like, this isn't right. Like he's only doing these things now because he has to, um, you know, I felt like, you know, I, I always use like the analogy of, you know, it felt like he was, um, a four-year-old boy And, um, you know, I'm a dump truck in the sandbox and, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with that dump truck. He left it a long time ago, but then someone else comes along and, you know, is interested in playing with the dump truck. And then all of a sudden he wants the dump truck back. And that's how I felt. I just felt, I I felt so angry. I felt so, so much, so much anger towards him because he knew Like that, those actions proved to me that he knew the whole time exactly what I needed and he just refused to give it to me, whether it was a control or just that he felt like he didn't owe me that or he didn't need to do those things for me, but he knew exactly what I would have been like thrilled with if he had done them, you know, during the course of the marriage, but he he and and again i don't i don't want to say that you know someone's behavior causes an action in another person but i never all i ever wanted to do in my in my life was to love that man to love my ex-husband and i tried so hard for 22 years that we were together to have a relationship with him and he didn't want to be in that relationship with me and even if he had just shown me even a bread you know even just slightly more than a breadcrumb of of interest or attention I would have put up with it and I think it's pretty evident that I would have put up with it given that it was 22 years that we were together that I already put up with it with getting so little from the relationship and, and not even, not even realizing it. But once your eyes are open, and this is why that song resonated with me so strongly was that once your eyes are open, you can't go back. Like you can't go back in the cage and everything about my life at that point, after that point, I just, I couldn't go back and it got really bad. Um, the, when I was trying to get out because he was hoovering so hard and he was being so manipulative. And I had agreed at that point to, you know, I cut off the relationship. We were going to marriage counseling, which I didn't know at the time, you know, after reading Lundy Bancroft's book and, you know, and learning more about it, that going to therapy, couples therapy with a narcissist or an abuser is the worst thing that you can do. And it truly was. Um, everything kind of got worse. Um, and I was honestly just 
so unbelievably miserable at that point that I, I didn't even want to continue going on with life. And which is another reason why that story, why that song resonates so much with me, because I understand being in that place of this is what I'm faced with right now is that I, I know that nothing is going to, that, you know, he might be a little bit more performative. He might, um, be a little bit nicer to me, but for how long, um, you know, and all of these things. And I couldn't shake the fact that he never would do those things until he had a motivation of losing me. Um, and I just couldn't shake that it was manipulation. It, It got to the point where it was, it was honestly life or death. And I, I really had to make the decision at that point that this wasn't, it wasn't going to work. Um, and I, you know, I, I still tried for a while. I tried for, for months um, to still keep going to therapy. We sought out, um, counsel from some, um, religious leaders. Basically what I had done was worse than anything that any, like that anybody could do. The fact that I got into essentially got into a relationship, even though it was an emotional relationship, um, that was the worst, that was the worst thing. And nothing about, nobody ever teaches about emotional abuse. And, you know, they don't talk about those things, um, as being problems. So there was from, from the families and things, it was, you know, I was the one in the wrong, I was the one in the wrong here. And, um, we actually went to this one particular pastor who was our um, this pastor from our school. He met with us and point blank after, after hearing the whole story, he said, you left her long ago. You were the one that was unfaithful to her. She has not been unfaithful to you. She has been loyal to you and you are, you have been emotionally abusing this woman for years, but I was absolutely blown away. It was the first time I had felt so, so unbelievably validated, and especially having it come from, you know, a religious leader, um, even with the, you know, even with all of the very, um, and, and I've heard the, the term use of performative recovery where, you know, they appear that they're changing and they appear that they're trying and man, he did everything. Like he, you know, he tried going to therapy. He was going to, he was meeting with a pastor of like multiple churches. You know, at first it was, you know, he admitted, he said, this is all my fault. Uh, I, I caused this. I am responsible for this. But then slowly that started backpedaling to where, you know, I might've done this, but you also did these things and you weren't exactly, you know, dip, easy to be with. And, you know, and, and it just, it, it was as if it was textbook. It was, it was like, you know, everybody, everybody says that, you know, when you, when you read about, um, the stages of, of how narcissistic abuse works and it was, it was absolutely classic in that way. And, and then yeah, fast forward a little bit, I was going to move out. Um, and he convinced me to not move out, but to stay, um, living in the house. So it was a big house. Um, and we could have done that. And I agreed to it, but only under the terms of, um, you know, we are not together. We are, you know, we are separate, we are separated. Um, and we, I wrote up documents to, you know, say that we were separated, but it really, 
it didn't matter. He was still treating me as if I was his. Um, and I still didn't have the freedom or the capacity to, um, to start living as if we were not together, um, until I actually made the decision to move out, um, which is, is a, a, a year in December. So I'm coming up on that one year anniversary of living on my own, which was the absolute scariest thing, um, I've ever done was to, you know, sign a lease and, um, just to make that decision and to start to realize that I was strong enough and smart enough to make my own decisions where, you know, I had always kind of thought, you know, he was the smart one. He was the one, you know, who had the, you know, the, the sense and the, you know, the common sense and the street smarts and all of that stuff. But just to realize that to, to start for the first time in believing that I was competent and capable and that I could do this, like I, I could leave. So when it comes to your divorce, what was the most eye-opening experience of it all for you and how did it affect your kids? He made me be the one to um, be the, um, oh, the word is escaping me now, the one who initiates the divorce, the, um, where so he was the respondent in it, but I was the one to, you know, say that I wanted the divorce. Um, the contester? The, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't remember the word off the top of my head, but um, I was, yeah, so I was the one, you know, he, he wrote it, like he actually physically wrote my name in that spot to say that, you know, because I think he didn't, he didn't want it to come back on him as, um, being the one who wanted the divorce. Um, cause he, at this point he has now completely turned into Mr. You know, C Christian, um, uh, again, you know, cause we had kind of, I mean, we would still go to church and things, but it wasn't like it was when we were younger, but as soon as this happened, you know, he's in church absolutely every Sunday, he's going to midweek programming. He's going to the support groups. He is, you know, posting, you know, Bible verses on Instagram, like just Mr. Like, cause, cause it's all about image, right. It's and, and losing me. And I realized that too, at the end, when I was, you know, the hoovering process, this isn't about me. This is about you losing your image and, you know, about your story coming out. And, and he, and during this time, during the divorce proceedings, he said, and it was the same exact thing as it was when we first got married. It's let's not tell people the whole story. Um, and you know, he said, let's come up with a narrative that we tell people That's what he said that that way. And it was because he was trying to use shame on my end, because again, what I had done was so shameful. And what, what he realized is that my part of the story was going to come out naturally versus his side of the story, or, or rather my side of the story about him wouldn't come out unless I told it. So he knew he was going to be covered there. Um, and it almost worked, but, but so, yep. So the divorce went through, um, in February and, um, we do have 50, 50, um, custody, which the kids, it has been the absolute most wonderful difference than, than I could have ever even anticipated or imagined. And, he, when we were going through the divorce, he, you know, he would send me all of the articles and tell me all of the reasons why 
the divorce was going to mess the kids up so badly and that it was all my fault. And he would say that they were going to know that it was my fault. Um, and he really tried to use the guilt aspect of, you know, our kids growing up in a divorced home and, you know, and then the negative aspects of that. And, you know, that was, that was devastating. Like that was so hard for me to contend with that. But I have seen such amazing personality changes in both of my children. I have a 10 year old and a five year old. So my daughter, um, since we moved, it's been night and day, um, night and day. She is open with me. She talks to me all the time. She tells me things that are happening at school. She asks me questions. She shares things. She's silly in a way I've never seen her be. She's um, just happy and lighthearted. She comes over and, and sits next to me and, and puts her head on me. She's, she is just a love. Um, and my son is, you know, even more so now. Um, and, and, you know, and my kids are just closer to each other and to me than they have ever been. Um, they, when they're with me now, and it was something that we never, ever did. I, I never did the co-sleeping thing or anything with my kids. Um, and now, I mean, my son, my five-year-old, you know, he wants to sleep in bed with me and my daughter, she brought her mattress in and has her mattress on the floor. Um, and they have a bedroom, but, uh, you know, they prefer to just sleep with me and it's been such a sweet, um, and wonderful bonding experience, um, that I've had with my children that I never had before. And I, I honestly have to attribute it to the fact that I'm just so much calmer. Um, and that I tried so hard to hide that I was struggling and I thought that I hid what was going on really well, but I think it was, it had to have been manifesting itself physically and emotionally in my emotional state and my level of patience and my level of capacity to, to give to my children was, um, diminished severely, um, because I was always trying to mitigate him and regulate, um, you know, manage his emotions and things like that. And, um, that I didn't have the capacity to give to my kids. And now while the 50, 50 thing is hard, I feel like in that 50% of the time I give, you know, 200% because before I just, I was too tired. I was tired all the time. I didn't feel like I had the capacity to be a good mom. I didn't enjoy motherhood the way that many women would describe it. Um, you know, and I say like, oh, why don't I feel that way? Like, why don't I enjoy it the same way? And for the first time since being, you know, ever since moving out and being away from him, um, I feel that joy for the first time. And I, I really think it has absolutely altered the course of history for, you know, the relationship that I have with my children. And how has your healing process been? It is, um, it was funny because I just listened to your, um, your last episode on the nonlinear healing process and that, well, you know, it was, it was interesting because I, I thought, you know, I, I'm doing this now, but then let's, you know, also see where I am in a year or two years, the way that the, you know, the woman in that episode did where I will, I will be great. 
um, for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, there are things that will set me off or to trigger that will trigger, um, something inside of me that, you know, I I'll have a setback for a while, or, you know, I'll have a, 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 a tearful weekend when I leave the kids or, but it's, it's becoming less and less. I feel like the more, um, the more I learn, the more empowered I become, the, the less he can have a hold on me, the more education I get, the less he can have a hold on me. Um, I recently finished, um, Lundy Bancroft's book. Um, why does he do that? And I think that that was one of the most empowering things I could have ever done because there was so much validating information in that book that, and I I think that's an absolute an absolute must and absolute key to, to recovery is just get as much knowledge as you can about what you experience. Because the more you hear that you're not singular in your experience and that other people experience things exactly like you did, all of a sudden you don't feel as crazy. And all of a sudden you don't feel like you made it up because when it was probably a good six months, six to nine months anyway, after the separation that I still had to fight with myself about, you know, was it really that bad? Am I just making it up? Am I, am I just, you know, did I, am I making things up about him? Am I exaggerating about how bad it was, you know, just because I want to get out of the relationship and need an excuse which is also messages that I'm receiving from, you know, some people around me, which is, you know, you know, you never, you never said anything about this before, you know, we, we know him and we have a really hard time believing this, that those messages permeated, you know, me for a really long time as to, you know, really coming to terms with whether or not did this really happen? Was it really as bad? Is this really abuse? Is this really narcissism. I mean, I, I went to, um, I was seeing a therapist for a bit, um, from, um, a center for, um, trauma, um, and recovery counseling. And, um, I told my story and it was, you know, a start to finish story, um, you know, similar to how I've told it today. And only I gave a lot more, you know, specific examples and things about individual, um, experiences. And the therapist said, you know, I work with a lot of emotionally abused women. He said, your case is the most clear cut case of narcissistic abuse I've ever seen. Um, and you know, just hearing things like that is so unbelievably validating to, to just know that you're not, you didn't make it up. It is as bad as you think it is. Um, there's lots of other people who have gone through the same thing. And once you start reading accounts, like even just being on Facebook groups and, and reading other people's stories and realizing that they're all exactly the same, like everybody, you know, in, in, in the, in ways that they're different, you know, and and how it's executed is different, but the, the basis is the same. They say the same things. They act the same way. They follow the same patterns. It is absolutely nothing, you know, that that, you know, we did to cause it. Um, and it is absolutely real. And I can say those things to myself until I'm blue in the face, but it's still, you know, I'm still working on getting it to completely permeate. Um, and recovery for, 
for me is still difficult because I'm still dealing with, I, I can't go no contact, obviously, like some other people can because we share children. Um, but I'm working on strategies to reduce the contact as much as possible um, because the contact can often be um, the thing that triggers those responses in me the most. I have, I have really worked towards strategies of, you know, instead of walking my kids out to the car, when he picks up, just letting them go, um, waving to them at the door and letting them go and things like that. Um, he's really still trying to control, um, me via the items that I still have in the home. Um, I was given two years to collect my personal items, um, from, from the home. And he has repeatedly, um, blocked me from getting, um, getting my stuff. He, um, you know, is very, you know, he'll tell me I can't bring, you know, moving company. He'll tell me I can't, um, bring certain people. Um, you know, he was very particular about that. He will give me some of the things that I ask for, but not all of them. You know, he's, he tries to claim that certain things aren't my personal property. Um, you know, that he, you know, I didn't specifically write it down in the divorce decree. So therefore I'm not entitled to it, even though it's very, very obvious that it was mine. Um, but while that's extremely frustrating, it's, I have to look at it is that he's still trying to control. He's still trying to garner supply. He's still trying to get a response out of me. I don't know if those, those types of things, I mean, will probably always be there in some capacity because we share children. So there's always going to be um, a power struggle. There's always going to be um, a, a, an element where he's going to feel like he can control something to do with me. But I'm working towards trying to reduce my reactions um, because I know that that feeds it. Um, and also just trying to focus on myself for once and my own happiness, figuring out who I am for the first time. Something that was said in the podcast that I listened to yesterday um, was the woman said that, you know, once you leave an abusive relationship, you can get back to trying to um, be the person that you were before the relationship. But I thought about that and I said, I wasn't a person before the relationship. I was the 13 year old girl. I don't know who I am as an adult woman. Um, so for me, it's been a process of learning who I am as a person for the first time. It's really, it's challenging because there's so much about the relationship that um, well, there, there's so much about me that I don't know if it's, if this is truly me or if this is just how I've been shaped, if this is just how, you know, his conditioning and, and, um, ha has, has trained me to think. And then, you know, I like these things or I do these things or I am this way because of those things. So it's been a discovery process and, um, I'm still learning and growing and, um, you know, I, I feel, you know, every day that I, you know, every day I, I used to say like, you know, I, I'm going to count the days in between the days that I cry. And every time that that days, every time that those days get longer and longer, I'm going to count it as, you know, that things are getting better that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting better. Um, and it, you know, it's been a good while now and I, I'm, I'm feeling mostly optimistic and, um, 
there is hope, like there is light, you know, there is, there is sight, um, at the end, at the end of that tunnel. And if you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening, what would it be? Just follow, follow your instincts. Um, if you feel like something isn't right, it's, it's probably not. Um, and you can listen to, listen to yourself, listen to your inner voice. I blocked mine out for so long and I replaced my voice with his voice and his voice became the voice of truth to me. And really just know that your, you know, your, your instincts are better than, than you think they are. Um, and also it's, it's not going to get better this time. Um, if, if you're being, you know, Hoovered, he's not really, it's not real change. It's not, it's performative. It's not, um, it's not going to get, it's not going to get better. I would just, I would just say you, you know, and, and I think I, I did, I knew in my heart for years that it was wrong, that I deserved better, but getting out seemed impossible. And until you can find a way to break that trauma bond and to realize that what you have been experiencing for so long wasn't love, it was addiction. And, and for, for me, I had to realize that, that I had been in a relationship for, you know, 22 years alone, essentially, where because of the intermittent reinforcement um, you know, they give you a little bit and then they yank it away and then you earn it back. And when they give it back to you, when they finally give you that breadcrumb, it feels so good. It feels so good. And, and you get addicted to that feeling. And then when you are in a re- another relationship and you realize that there aren't those kind of, of peaks and valleys when it's healthy, you know, it's just if it's just, it's, it feels good all the time (laughs) and it, you know, it's, there's not supposed to be those crazy highs and lows. Um, and just realize what, what you're involved in, um, and come to terms with the fact, label everything, think about your conversations, look back at messages, label everything. Because to me, once everything had a name, it was absolutely life-changing because all of a sudden I had all this terminology for things that I didn't know had terminology. Um, so just knowledge and empowerment and uh, developing that intuition and following it and, and listening to yourself. And, um, and I know it's not easy for everyone. And, you know, in my situation, I was fortunate to, you know, I have a, a good career and I was able to get you know, on my feet before, you know, before the divorce was, you know, finalized. I know not everybody has that, but just to, to, um, you know, seek the help that you need, um, and recognize that there are so many different types of abuse and that just because he's not hitting you doesn't mean you're not being abused. Well, Lucy, 
I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You did a wonderful job. You were very clear for people to you know, understand what they're going through, to validate their experience. And you just really did a very good job. You, know, you gave people a vocabulary today, and I really uh, want to thank you uh, for, for being here. You are very welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come on and share my story. Well, thank you, Lucy, for being here with us today once again. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Lucy was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. Also at our website, we have our very own Safe Social Network. So at the top of the page, if you click the Support Group button, Inside, you will find that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on and for fellow survivors to validate your experience, to answer you, to share all of their knowledge that they have as well. And we have ad-free episodes on there. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have bonus episodes on there. And it's just a really good group of people in our support group. So if you need support, please do join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, you have articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you've been going through. They have the phone numbers, email addresses, and websites to every shelter, every domestic violence agency, big town, small town. They have it there at DomesticShelters.org. It's a great organization. And that is it for today's episode. I really want to thank Lucy for being here uh, once again. And from Lucy and myself, we hope you have a good night.